Speeding bullet. More powerful than a locomotive. Able to leap tall buildings in a single bound. Superman. Yes, Superman. Strange visitor from another planet who came to Earth with powers and abilities far beyond those of mortal men. Superman. Who, disguised as Clark Kent, mild-mannered reporter for a great metropolitan newspaper, fights the never-ending battle for truth, justice, and the American way. Hey, everybody. Welcome to episode 156 of the Man of Screen podcast. I am your host, Mike Zumo, and this week, back to the Ruby Spears Superman with episodes 9 and 10. The uh, first segment will contain the Superman story Bone Chill and the Superman family album story The Driver's License. I'll bet you can't figure out what that's about. And in the second segment, I will come back around to The Beast Beneath These Streets. That's a Superman story and a fairly interesting one, I think. And the Kent family album story or Superman family album story, depending on how you want to say it. First date. And uh, just a note, a little bit of bookkeeping here. Uh, I will continue with... uh, alternating Superboy and Ruby Spears Superman until I run out of Ruby Spears episodes. After this one, there are only three Ruby Spears episodes remaining, as there were 13 made. So after next week's Superboy episode, I'll come back for 11 and 12 of Ruby Spears, Superboy, and then I'll cover episode 13, and that will finish off my coverage of uh, the Ruby Spears Superman. I'll Maybe see if I can do something uh, special for that episode, closing out the Ruby Spears Superman. I make no promises at this point, but it is something to think about. Now, before I get to feedback, I should probably address the announcement last week that the Snyder Cut of Justice League is coming to HBO Max sometime next year. It was announced uh, during uh, a Zack Snyder rewatch online of on uh, his Vero uh, social media platform of Man of Steel, and... I know I've said some things mostly negative about the uh, decision to release it, and I do believe this sets a dangerous precedent for not only Warner Brothers, but for movie studios in general. There have been a group of, a very vocal minority of Snyder supporters that, and to be fair, he seemed to egg them on, that engaged in online harassment, and anytime anybody mildly associated with Warner Brothers tweeted something, even if it was completely unrelated, there was a release the Snyder Cut hashtag. So for the past two years, these people, again, a very vocal minority, not not all of, not everybody, but these people have just driven to the point where I didn't want to see it because I don't want them getting their way. And I, it feels like Warner Brothers is rewarding bad behavior. And I'm just concerned about the kind of precedent this is going to set going forward. I mean, you're already seeing it. There was some rumors some months ago about the rise of Skywalker that there was a different cut of the movie preferred by J.J. Abrams. And for a short time, we got to release the J.J. cut. Uh, One of Abrams' friends, uh, Greg Greenberg, who was Snap Wexley in Force Awakens and and the rise of Skywalker, basically came out with the kibosh on that. But to give that vocal minority what it wants gives fans 
agency they don't necessarily deserve. It's a little bit like the inmates running the asylum. Film is art, even commercial art, and fans don't get to decide what the content is. And we've come too far into a culture where if the filmmakers don't make the movie that a particular fan has in his head, he goes to Twitter, goes to Facebook, goes to whatever social media platform he wants and just loses his shit over it. And that kind of behavior has no place in fandom. You can criticize, you can point out what you liked, what you didn't like, why you know, why you didn't like it, you know. You can disagree all you want as long as you're polite and reasonable about it. And but then you don't own it. That's it. You're done. You don't get to decide what the next thing is. The only thing a filmmaker owes you is his or her best effort. Now, I can look at the Snyder films, especially Man of Steel and uh, Batman v Superman. And yes, I can say the Snyder, the story Snyder told is not what I wanted. But I will never look at those movies and say Zack Snyder didn't give his best effort. He clearly did. He put his heart and soul into that, into Man of Steel and definitely into Batman v Superman. I mean, it's all there right in the, in the movie making. But, you know, the story is not what I want. And to be quite frank, what I've read about the story for his version of Justice League and what his plans were going forward, I didn't have any interest in that either. So, you know, and maybe these uh, vocal uh, Snyder supporters will learn what the Diner Cut folks learned 14 years ago. Oh, my God, has it really been 14 years at this point? What they learned all those years ago when uh, the Richard Diner Cut came out. Perhaps having is not so pleasing a thing as wanting. So that's all I really have to say about it, you know. I don't think seeing the Snyder version is going to change my opinion of Justice League one way or the other. The one thing I will say about the theatrical cut, there was some stuff in the trailer that I saw that I thought was kind of humorous, that I liked, and that stuff was not in the finished version. So I'm going to give the Snyder cut a shot and see see what is, and I'll give it I'll give it its fair shake. You know, I don't have a horse in the race. I'm not going in it with a pitchfork like maybe some others are, but let's see what it is when it comes out ne- next year. You know, it could be better. It could be worse. You never know. So. That's all. I have no real horse in the Snyder Cut race, aside from the way some of his fans behaved in their pursuit of this. And I just don't want to see every time a movie is made that that fans don't like, we're going to get into this conspiracy over an alternate cut. And with the way things went down with Justice League, there was plenty of uh, room for conspiracy theories. There was the... I mean, there was already uh, a lot of anti-Snyder sentiment after Batman v Superman. And then there was the suicide of his daughter, which is tragic. I mean, if one of my daughters did that, I'd probably, you know, go in a hole and even money whether or not I'd come out again. But, I mean, the deal with that on top of the, the crap from the studio and dealing with the fans online, most of which were screaming for his head. Even if I don't like the movies, I don't condone that behavior either. But I can see the point where, you know, his heart wasn't in it anymore and he had to walk away. Of course, there's another conspiracy going around that he was fired and and using the death of his daughter as an excuse. And to be quite honest, I can see Warner Brothers doing that also. But next year on HBO Max, the Justice League Snyder Cut, I will check it out just to, you know, to see what's what. I have no opinion on its quality right now, but I'm happy for those who want it. And anyone who doesn't, you know, they don't have to watch it. Although between you and me, you know they will. So that's that. I just wanted to get that out there. Now. On to this week's feedback. I've got an email here from Dave McElvenny. Dave is writing in on Man of Screen episode... I didn't note it down here. I think this is episode 145. One of the episodes I talked about is The Dark Side Deception. So, if I'm wrong, well, then I'm wrong. But anyway, Dave writes, Greetings, Mike. 
The Dark Side Deception was another interesting look at Dark Side's unrequited desire, and I wouldn't say love with Dark Side for Wonder Woman, apparently a recurring theme for this season and the previous one. The trope of the villain disguising himself to get close to the hero is, as you said, a common one, but here it has, at least in part, the same flaw as it usually does. The imposter can never completely act like the real person, which is a big flaw when the hero knows the real person very well, as Wonder Woman knows Steve Trevor. It was an added good plot point that Darkseid replaced the real TC-7 satellite with his reconfigurator, because Darkseid is about planetary conquest more than romantic conquest. It was mildly amusing that the heroes forgot about the satellite until the end of the story. I think the longer story length was really well used here. On your point about whether or not Steve Trevor knows Wonder Woman's secret identity, it's been decades since I've read the comics of this period, but I don't recall that he did know she was Diana Prince. Of course, the viewers know, so the script might simply have glossed over that point without looking too closely at it. I like that the fear, as you mentioned, gives us the first outside-of-the-comics look at the death of Thomas and Martha. Why did you say that name? Wayne, as well as Bruce's desire to exploit criminals' fear and superstition to assume the identity of a bat. And I think it's presented quite well. The idea that Batman visits Crime Alley every year on the anniversary of his parents' murder is an idea that goes back to, the de to Detective Comics number 457, March 1976, in the story, There Is No Hope in Crime Alley. I have to give Adam West's performance as Batman some serious respect here. In particular, he sounds quite frightening here as he questions Scarecrow's straw men. I don't think I expected him to have uh, that performance in him. As for Scarecrow's identity of Jonathan Crane, I think this was pretty well known in the comics since his first appearance back in 1941. I assume that the discovery of his true identity in this story was meant to show Batman's skill as a detective. These were a pair of really strong stories, and I'm glad to hear them. Thank you. Live long and prosper, Dave. Okay, and as always, I thank you, Dave, for writing in. Yeah, I agree. These were two very strong uh, Galactic Guardian stories right here. The Dark Side Deception was one of the... Uh, yeah, it was good. I mean, it wasn't one of the better Dark Side stories. I I think if I had to look back on what was done with Dark Side, Dark Side's Golden Trap is a story that stands out in my mind as one of the... as probably my favorite. The Death of Superman is up there as well. I'll probably put those two over the Dark Side Deception, but the Dark Side Deception was uh, very good. And yeah, and I think Dave has addressed it a lot of my points. Uh, I mean, it's been so long ago since I've edited this show and listened to it that I really don't remember exactly what I said, but I do uh, remember pointing out that maybe Wonder Woman should have, should have been a little bit uh, wiser to the disguise of Steve Trevor than she was. But it's a Pyotrope, it's been used a long time, and it's probably going to be, continue to be used. And I want to talk a little bit about the fear again, which when I started going through this show and I knew that it was coming up, I was really curious as to how a show with the nature of the Super Friends was going to handle Batman's origin, which is a dark origin. There's no really running away from that, but it was presented well, and I am not one of those people who gets angry when the origins of either Superman, Batman, or Spider-Man are shown again. I mean, I've heard other people say, you know, they never need to see that again. That's fine. Or if they want to see that origin story, the stuff that they can watch. I, I think that's a little bit of elitist fan gatekeeping. Granted, I could go without ever seeing them again, but I am of the belief, and this is something I believe quite strongly, that every generation deserves to have 
their version of the origin of these characters. So I don't mind seeing it over again. Especially now, I'm a little more tolerant of these things now that now that I'm a parent and my daughter Haley is starting to uh, kind of come into, I don't want to say she's coming into fandom per se, because that brings on a whole bunch of other connotations, but she's definitely showing more interest and maybe the Superman, the movie origin of Superman doesn't work as well for her as something else would. But, you know, I believe every generation is entitled to have their version and of even the origin and of the characters. So I definitely do not begrudge change. And I don't begrudge change. I don't necessarily want to call it growth. But anyway, it was very interesting to see how they would, Super Friends would present it. And it was presented well. And yeah, the story, uh, there is no hope in Crime Alley. That is uh, one of the uh, one of the best. I believe that's in my version over there that I have of the greatest Batman stories ever told. That and... That's one of my favorite stories regarding uh, the murder of the Waynes. Is also another favorite story of mine. I know the story. It's the one where the Phantom Stranger takes Batman into a into a parallel universe, and he saves the Waynes from being murdered. Must there be a Batman or something like that? I don't remember the title, but that's another good one. But yeah, I do like the idea of Batman visiting uh, Crime Alley uh, once a year. That concept was reused in the origin of Jason Todd by Max Allen Collins in the late 80s, but the less said about that, the better. But at this point, I'm kind of rambling, so I guess I don't have much else to say. I really enjoyed both episodes. I liked the way The Death of the Waynes was presented, you know, for kids. And yeah, I will agree with Dave. And th- this was probably the most frightening Adam West has ever been as Batman. And you, you always associate Adam West with, you know, kind of with silliness, but... He can do the dark, gritty Batman with his voice. So I'm not sure I would have bought him as that live action, but he could definitely do it in animation. So that's all I've got on Dave's letter. And that is all I have. I thought I had another more feedback, but I guess I don't. So what I'm going to do now is I'm going to take a quick break, play a podcast promo. And then when I come back, Superman story, Bone Chill and the Ken family album story, the driver's license. Hang around, folks. Hey, everybody. Magnus here. In 1992, seven men disrupted the comic book industry. And it was awesome. It's hard to find a comic book publisher that launched with more anticipation, excitement, and hype than Image Comics did. Now me, I love Image Comics. So much, in fact, that beginning in March of 2020, I'm embarking upon a brand new epic mega-series. These seven men are disrupting the comic book industry. I'm taking a fond look back at a handful of early image titles. What was good? What was bad? What were some missed opportunities? Well, things couldn't have been too horrible because those comics sold millions and millions of copies. So join in on the fun with me and take a fond look back at the comics of yesteryear. These seven men are disrupting the comic book industry. A Trennis Magnus Punches Reality mega series beginning in March of 2020. Only at twotruefreaks.com. All right, welcome back, folks. 
original broadcast date for episodes of this segment was November 12th, 1988. And we're going to start with the Superman story, Bone Chill. This is written by Larry Dettilio. And both of our synopses are brought to you by supermanhomepage.com, your number one source for Superman information on the web. Teenagers looking for decorations for their school dance are scared off by bookstore owner Chilton Bone. Ew, what an icky place. Hey, be cool. Think how great some of this stuff will look at the dance. Put that down, you little cretin. We're, we're on the decorations committee for the big alumni dance tomorrow night, and we, um... You're in the wrong place. Get out. Hey, dude, no need to be rude. I said get out. <laughs> Stupid college kids. Lois and Jimmy turn up to interview Mr. Bone about the talisman of Ola, an ancient medallion. Are you Chilton Bone? Who wants to know? Lois Lane. Uh, I'm a reporter for the Daily Planet. I'm doing a story on the talisman of Olaf, and uh, Professor Gerber at the university suggested I speak to you. Gerber is a fool. He believes the talisman is nothing but a pretty bubble. Are you saying there's something more to it? The talisman is power. With it, a man can summon beings beyond mortal belief to do his bidding, if he is the right man. You're like all the rest. Get out of my store! Get out! Okay, okay, no need to shout. We're going. Come on, Jimmy. Boy, what a nut burger. Soon they'll believe. Soon everyone will believe. And then they'll pay. Bone chases them off, too, before stealing the talisman and using his power to turn himself into Bone Chill. As Lois, Jimmy, and Clark enter, Bone Chill brings to life ancient mummies to attack them. Running into an alley, Bone Chill is seen by the same teenagers and decides to do away with them. He brings to life a strange creature to kidnap one of the girls who is riding with Lois in her car. Superman comes to the rescue, so Bone Chill goes after the other teenagers, each in turn being rescued by Superman. Turning his attention on Jimmy, Perry, and Lois, Bone Chill kidnaps them all, endangering their lives to distract Superman and allow him to capture the Midnight Moonlight to give him more power. Superman, however, rescues his friends and destroys the talisman. Bones in prison where he belongs, and our campus is back to normal, thanks to you. My pleasure, sir. And now, up, up, for the way! Okay, so we have a supernatural episode here, you know, a little bit of magic in these episodes goes a long way. When you don't want to overuse the uh, concept of kryptonite as a weakness for Superman, you really only have two choices. You can either go the supernatural route, which I always say I hesitate to call that a weakness, more like something his powers don't protect him from, or you have to go big with a supervillain that can go one-on-one with Superman physically. However, there's issues with standards and punching in this show, so him going toe-to-toe with another being might not always be possible. But he can go toe-to-toe with the mummies. So this episode starts with some kids kind of making their way through what appears to be a museum, and they are on the decorations committee, and this uh, spooky old dude wants them to get out, and he waves a rubber knife at them well they don't know it's a rubber knife they think it's a real knife but after they turn and uh run away he kind of just uh, bends the blade it's got one of those uh bendable blades really more of a prop than anything else well they thought it was real and they got the hell out of there that's when lois and jimmy show up looking for uh chilton bone and uh lois is doing a story on the on the talisman because well that's kind of how you introduce lois into these things you just have her doing a story on whatever the uh macguffin of the episode is so, Bone states that the talisman is power because, of course it is, 
I uh, like the motion Jimmy makes pointing. Uh, you know, he kind of points his finger at his head and uh, waves it around in a circular motion. You know, saying basically he thinks Bone is uh, crazy. I mentioned before an interview Marv Wolfman had done, and he said that one of the notes he kept getting was more dialogue, more dialogue, more dialogue. I really like that Jimmy was able to make that motion without any dialogue because I think even kids will get what Jimmy's doing there. I don't really need him saying, oh, Jimmy's lean. I think this guy is nuts because that would just lead to all kinds of unpleasantness way too early in the episode. Meanwhile, they mentioned a professor and that's who Clark is with. And uh, apparently uh, the professor fired Bone and this is uh, why Bone has it in for the professor. It's an old uh, plot line. Somebody fires former employee for whatever reason, and former employee is out for revenge. So Bowen has shown up at the university, and he's gotten a hold of the talisman, and it's changed Bowen's complexion. So now instead of uh, looking like a scarless Jonah Hex, which is kind of what it looked like, looked like the model of Jonah Hex just without the big scar. And so instead of looking like that, instead he looked like Skeletor in a big robe. As his skin is gone, and uh, his face has uh, basically rightly been reduced to Bone. So instead of Chilton Bone, he's Bone Chill. I know we're still two years shy of the 90s at this point, but Bone Chill sounds very 90s. So Lois uh, wants to uh, get the... And she goes right up to one of these mummies that uh, Bone Chill has used the talisman on to bring to life. So what was she expecting to do? Was she going to interview a mummy? So now that the mummies have uh, gotten the best of Clark, she's ready to run. And I like that Clark grabbed the sword and uh, went after the mummy. I mean... I know this is him trying to create a diversion so they can get away and uh, leave him alone so he can change to Superman, but it kind of is out of character for Clark a little bit. And then after everybody's gone, he has no qualms about changing into Superman in front of the mummy. I guess he's not going to tell anyone. So the mummies take Lo- Lois and Jimmy out there, carrying them. The mummies are holding Lois and Jimmy over their heads, and Superman just kind of flies right in and takes them. You know, they are, the mummies are holding them up, kind of showboating, and uh, Superman makes them regret it. If uh, these mummies can feel regret. So now we've uh, got Superman fighting mummies. And uh, basically one punch of these things just kind of disappear. So they're not real people. They're supernatural creatures. So I guess when they're undead, for lack of a better term, it's okay to punch them. And we're going to see a lot more of that later on in the episode. So Lois goes back in after Clark. And I kind of like the uh uh-oh for Superman. (laughs) As he's fighting the mummies, this is clearly something he forgot about. Superman is not paying attention to his secret identity. He's fallen down on the job, so as Lois runs in, he has to figure out what the hell he's going to do about his Clark Kent identity. So what does he decide to do? He hides in a sarcophagus, because that's where a timid reporter would hide. Now, he's playing the timid reporter here, despite that we saw Clark go after the, the mummy with a sword. So, if Lois were paying attention, the going after the mummy with the sword and hiding in the sarcophagus don't necessarily match up real well so one thing i wasn't sure about when i after the initial change into bone chill that apparently a uh, bone chill can change into chilton bone pretty much at will so he goes from uh having flesh to not having flesh and then the college kids kind of run into him and they kind of he's on the floor looks like he's having a heart attack or something and they just kind of leave him to suffer because he was a prick to them earlier so the college dance is going on and uh, lois is happy to help clark and uh apparently uh clark went to this university he was the alumni guest of honor Clark downplays uh, his contribution to the college. He said he only did a little grad work there. So maybe this show is going with the history that Clark traveled the world or something. I don't know. So here we are. Clark is doing some stammering. And uh, 
he asks uh, Lois to be his date. You know, I like the nervousness here, and, uh, you know, everybody knows how Clark and by extension Superman feels about Lois, and uh, if Superman asked such a thing, he wouldn't do it with all the stammering, but it's part of Clark's uh, shtick, let's call it that. But when Lois says she would be very happy to be his date, I kind of got a little suspicious, kind of wondering what her game might be. So apparently when uh, Chilton Bone can become bone ch- becomes bone chill, he can turn all kinds of things to life, and uh, like I mentioned before, he appears to be supernatural, so... This is uh, quite a problem for Superman. Now we meet, meet this girl named Barbara and uh, a cloaked figure that Bonechill created is dragging her out of the car. And uh, before Superman shows up, we do get the second great shirt rip in this episode. And one thing this particular episode does not skip out on, we get is shirt rips. We get at least three good ones in the Bonechill story alone. So Superman grabs this uh, cloaked being and it disappears. So this is where Barbara basically does an exposition dump. And tell Superman about Bone's talisman. And apparently some of the other students are at the drive-in. Which turns into a 3D experience as Bone brings the monsters right off the screen and into their lives. (laughs) The cop doesn't believe them at first. And he kind of wonder why he would. But his mind is quickly changed when the monsters uh, walked up to uh, the concession stand or wherever it was they they were. So the one thing I like about this episode is I like seeing Superman throwing punches. You know, monsters are okay and... However, I don't think he can punch Bonechill because despite the fact that you know Bonechill is basically a walking skeleton, he is still a person and he probably has a soul. This is why he could have fight the Defendroids in the first episode, but apparently now monsters have no souls. I don't know. I can't keep up with all that. So Superman goes after Ted, who of course wants to uh, finish his frame. He's bowling. And this uh, blob-like thing emerges from the pins and Superman has something else to fight. Which, and it looks more like a bunch of taffy than anything else. So Superman starts with some trial and error. First, some heat vision. That made it worse. So it stands to reason that Freed Breath will remedy the situation. And it appears that through this talisman, Bone Chill can bring whatever he imagines to life. Which I guess is the kind of thing that can come back and bite you. I'm not sure you want to bring everything to life. So Lois and Jimmy are at the uh, shop or office or whatever it is of... They're looking through Chilton Bone's books, and they're finding the answer to the power of the talisman. So, Jimmy and Lois are back at the planet doing their, doing their work. Clark is decked out in his tuxedo, and, uh, oops, Lois forgot. And she's looking awful informal in her work clothes. She might want to do something about that before she goes to, uh, this college alumni dance that Clark is, uh, dragging her to. So, a bone shield shows up, and we get some kind of four-headed monster thing. It doesn't appear to have any legs. It walks on its arms. A very strange-looking creature. And it uh, takes Jimmy out of the Daily Planet office. And apparently, it has enough tentacles for both Jimmy and Perry. So, off that creature goes into uh, into the night. Meanwhile, Lois has apparently found the green dress somewhere. And uh, Clark uh, steps the hell out of her feet while they're dancing. And this is uh, not how she envisioned her evening. She's not planning on getting broken toes. But what happens next is something she'll like even less. She got a phone call which saved her feet. But then a giant cockroach shows up behind her. I know of no one that really likes it when a giant cockroach shows up behind them. If you do like that, let me know. I want to call somebody and make sure you get the help that you need. Now, for some reason, Clark confronts Bonechill as himself and not as Superman. Uh, I don't know why, but he does. You would think he'd have taken a second to turn into Superman, but nope. He has to wait until uh, Boneshill leaves, and then he changes to Superman. So we get one more short rip, and Superman is on his way. Perry is underneath an axe, swinging like a pendulum, so 
What we're going to see is Superman has to save Perry and Lois and Jimmy in succession. Kind of reminds me of the George Reeves uh, Adventures of Superman, The Perils of Superman, which for those of you who remember my coverage of that with Bob Fisher way back when, Superman had to save Perry White from a buzzsaw, Lois from the railroad tracks, and Jimmy from bad breaks, all in succession. Something similar going on here, just not as good. The uh, giant cockroaches are walling her up like the uh, Edgar Allan Poe uh, cask of a Montelado story. Superman makes light work of the bug, giving uh, Lois and Superman a moment to uh, flirt. Not the time for that. Now, Superman puts together that Bone Chill is designing his traps, uh, which are inspired by Edgar Allan Poe stories. Now, I immediately got the cask of Amontillado from when the cockroach is walling uh, Lois up inside. I don't know what story the swinging pendulum refers to. I don't know my Edgar Allan Poe stories that well. Obviously, I know the two famous ones, uh, short, as far as short stories go, the, like the aforementioned cask of Amontillado and, uh, of course, the Telltale Heart. And you can't mention uh, Edgar Allan Poe without invoking thoughts of the raven. So they, like I mentioned, the Telltale Heart was involved with Jimmy's trap. They heard the heart beating, and that's how he got saved. So apparently what's going to happen with Bone Chill here, if uh, he exposes the talisman to the full moon at midnight, he'll become extra powerful. It's always midnight that makes these things extra powerful. So Superman comes up to Bone Chill, demands the talisman, but is knocked down for his trouble. Bone Chill exposes the uh, talisman to the moon, which turns red, and now we've got all kinds of creatures kind of emerging from the gym floor. And and the, here they are. They're piling on Superman. I never get tired of this. I never get tired of seeing, you know, creatures, villains, or whatever just kind of pile on Superman, and then he just kind of gets up and knocks them all off, and they all scatter in different directions. Never get tired of that. So Bone Chill's uh, got a bed for this university for some reason. He must have been expelled as a kid. However, Bone Chill is no match for a super tornado, and Superman traps the creatures that way. And then it kind of comes to a kind of a bit of a ho-hum ending, I think. Uh, Superman blows Bone Chill into the water fountain, destroys the talisman, and then that's kind of it. That turns Bone Chill back into Chilton Bone, and the professor says the campus is back to normal except for the wrecked gym. You know, it just seems like they're writing this episode and uh, the writers realize they're running out of time and they just come with a quick solution that doesn't really... That seems anticlimactic after the action of the entire episode. But... It was an action-packed episode. I like seeing Superman fight the monsters. But it doesn't stand out as great. I mean, a fair few of these do. I'm not sure, like, in a year or so now, when I'm a year or so removed from watching this, that I'll remember this episode without looking at the title or something. But for the 18 minutes that I watched it, I was entertained by it. So, I'm going to spend the next four minutes with The Driver's License. And this was written by Sherry Wilkinson. And our Superman homepage synopsis is as follows. Pa Kent tries to teach Clark how to drive. However, Clark has problems hitting barrels. Pa has placed his obstacles. When ready, Clark first takes and quickly passes the written exam, passes the eye exam with flying colors, and finally takes the driving test, which he also passes, highly impressing the driving instructor. My first question is, why do I care about Clark getting his driver's license? I'm, I'm starting to wonder here, can he fly at this point? This show is especially it's kind of a mishmash of post-crisis and pre-crisis origins, so... So maybe Clark couldn't fly yet at the time when he's uh, getting his driver's license. So Clark is trying to park between two barrels, and he kind of blows them away to make room for his vehicle, which is not really something you can do when it's a real car. You know, you can't just blow somebody's car down the street because it's bothering you. It might hit other people's cars. 
somebody might catch you and you wind up having to pay liability or something like that. I don't know, but either way, you can't blow away somebody's car. As much as Clark and his uh, lack of parallel parking skills right here would seem to indicate. So Clark is very anxious for his driver's test and has to take the written test first. Apparently this one guy failed the three times and he should be ashamed of himself and never get a driver's license. I took the written test in 1996. I found it very easy. I got 100 on it. When one of the questions is, what do you do at a stop sign? It's hard to take the test seriously. I believe the correct answer is, you floor it. So Clark is quickly learning what a nightmare the DMV is. Even if you only have one thing to do, it's the lines suck. So Clark read the smallest line on the eye chart, which was actually the name of the company that printed the eye chart. It was way down at the bottom. Apparently nobody has asked uh, the nurse to read that before, and she had to pull out a magnifying glass to see uh, the credits. So uh, Clark is uh, cheating on his road test by using his x-ray vision to avoid an accident. And uh, Clark is just having all kinds of trouble on the road. He is definitely running into what I call the automotive harassment squad. Here's a guy that's going really slow in front of him. Here's another guy that's pulling out from behind the building that Clark wouldn't be able to see without x-ray vision. Then he encountered a guy having a blowout on the road that he had to get out of the way of. The amount of stuff Clark saw in his brief time on the road is far disproportionate to anything you might actually see. But all this does is give the instructor a minute to praise Clark's reflexes. So Clark did the hardest part to parallel park, so he's done well, and uh, Clark aced the test with extreme aid of his superpowers. So Clark has a driver's license. He learns faster than I did, although I didn't have superpowers to help me. I had to take my road test twice. So not a bad episode. It's just, it shows Clark as an ordinary teenager. Teenagers are anxious to start driving once they are of driving age. So decent episode. I really have no uh, complaints. If you have any complaints, you can send them to wherever you like. But for right now, we'll take another podcast promo break. When I come back, the Superman story, The Beast Beneath These Streets, and the Ken Family Album story, First Date. Hang around, folks. My name is Bob Fisher, and I'm the host of the Superman Forever radio podcast. On the Superman Forever radio podcast, I talk about Superman from 1938 to present day. And in 2018, we celebrate the 80th anniversary of the Man of Steel's first appearance in Action Comics with a full year of new episodes, more episodes, plus new features like The Adventures of Superman When He Was a Boy. Superboy is coming to the Superman Forever radio podcast. Also, the Superman Forever Roundtable Discussion Group, where I gather together some of the best Superman podcasters around, and we talk Superman. So if you want to know why I've been a Superman fan for over 60 years, point your favorite podcatcher to the Superman Forever radio podcast at supermanforever.com. All right, welcome back, folks. All the episodes of this segment had original broadcast date of November 19th, 1988. And we're going to start with The Superman Story, The Beast Beneath These Streets. This was written by Michael Reeves, and our synopsis is brought to you by supermanhomepage.com, your number one source for Superman information on the web. A part of Metropolis has been buried undisturbed for 100 years. A grand opening involving Superman takes place to unearth Old Town. 
how did a whole section of the city get paved over and forgotten? Well, Lois, they say it was all because of one man. A Dr. Morpheus who supposedly invented a machine to turn himself into an animal creature. As he took on the powers of animals, he himself became a beast, more animal than human, but as cunning and intelligent as before, and dedicated to conquering Metropolis. <sighs> he tried to take over Metropolis. The governor sent him the state militia. He stalked the city at night attacked his prey. The citizens banded together and chased the beast. During the hunt, the beast that was Morpheus started a fire that raged through Metropolis and nearly destroyed the entire city. Instead of trying to rebuild, the people of Metropolis just paved over the ruins and built new buildings. At least, that's the legend. Boy, that's spooky. The legend turns out to be true when Lois is kidnapped by Morpheus to lure Superman to his machine where he drains Superman of his powers. With Lois's help, Superman grabs a piece of kryptonite to use on Morpheus, weakening him and placing him inside his own machine, whereby Superman's powers are returned to him and the machine is destroyed, trapping Morpheus inside. Right, Superman! You're back to your old self again! Yes, thanks to both of you. Morpheus has finally been captured, and his transmutator won't be creating any more beasts for a while. I'll go get the police! I uh, couldn't have done this without you, Lois. Anytime, Superman. Anytime. Up, up, and away! So this was an interesting episode. Another monster story, because I guess you have the most freedom when you're going after monsters. But there's a little bit of a twist here, as the monster, or in this case, the beast beneath the streets is actually a person from 100 years ago that apparently has survived underneath Metropolis for that long. What did he eat for 100 years? I, and where did he get his longevity from? Maybe that's one of the animal powers that he has? I don't know. So anyway, uh, Lois and Jimmy are at an exhibition to uh, reopen uh, Old Town, which, as the synopsis mentioned, is a city that has been buried for 100 years. Of course, they have Superman dig it out because nobody else wants to do the work. So, and... When Superman goes under the city, you see the old town, for lack of a better word, phrase, and you see some kind of what, at least in shadow, looks kind of insectoid, with large yellow eyes, and I guess you're meant to believe that that's the beast. So there's a part of Metropolis that was buried. I wonder, you know, just as I kind of wondered if the episode was going to tell us how old town got down there, we get a flashback slash exhibition dump that tells us all about it. Superman says it's all one man, Dr. Morpheus, who is who used a machine to, uh, as the synopsis said, endow himself with the power of animals. You know, not bad for the 1880s. You want to say it's about an average 100 years before the episode aired. So if these episodes take place in 1988 or so, then 100 years ago is 1888 or so. So uh, apparently uh, the beast was dedicated to conquering Metropolis and uh, the uh, citizens uh, kind of chased him away and uh, hid Old Town. And... They paved over this city so no one would get to it. And if anybody knows this legend, why would they open it? And one thing I want to know 
is where did they get the technology in the 1880s to literally pave over a city? Some of these buildings are, you know, at least two or three stories tall. How did they get that underground? Is there like a big hill somewhere in Metropolis and oh, down is underneath it? Just, I don't know. The whole thing doesn't seem to work for me. I don't know. But it's a cartoon, so you just kind of go with it. And of course, uh, as we're kind of going through Old Town, Lois and Jimmy are the first to encounter the beast. And the Superman encounters it rather quickly as well. And when you get a good look at it, it's uh, not really an insectoid. Although it does kind of shoot webs, almost like Spider-Man would. But it looks more like the man bat. So it's kind of, so it's an interesting combination. You know, it's got the big long bat wings. So, but it's furry and it just looks like a whole mess of uh, different creatures. But the bat motif is definitely very heavy into the creature. So Superman asks the mayor to postpone the excavation because the beast is roaming around. And the mayor says, of course, anything you say, Superman, sir. Thank you very much. Superman takes Lois home, and uh, I'm thinking that the design is at the very least loosely based on uh, her apartment in Superman the movie, which also had a very large terrace. So the beast now comes out of a manhole, and I kind of wonder if the excavation is kind of given the beast access to the Metropolis sewer systems. Otherwise, uh, why wouldn't it have appeared before this? I mean... Apparently, this beast was underneath the city for 100 years. If it had access to the city's sewer system, it would have been able to get out. So Clark changes the Superman into the, in the broom closet, you know, as he is wont to do. However, he goes into the broom closet as Clark comes out of Superman and flies out the window. I'm guessing that uh, there's no window in the broom closet. The uh, George Reeves Adventures to Superman, where Clark went into the storeroom lots of times to change the Superman. That show actually did establish that the storeroom had a window, so he... He was always flying out the storeroom window. Could you imagine if Clark went into the storeroom and John Hamilton walked out of his office and right as Superman would come out? That would uh, that would surely be something, wouldn't it? Great sages, ghost. So Superman finds uh, Lois's apartment wrecked and some of uh, Morpheus's webs, so he easily knows what happened. And uh, apparently Morpheus can talk, so he's not a mindless beast. He's uh, there's some brains trapped underneath all of that uh, animal fur, so he knows who Superman is, which I guess is a thing done for convenience, but. If he was locked under the city for 100 years, how would Morpheus know about Superman? It's an open question. But he's going to turn Superman into a creature like him because he wants to. I guess because you want to do something is as good a reason as any for doing something. I wouldn't necessarily call it a justification, but, you know, it works for Morpheus, so I guess that's really all we need. Apparently Morpheus can also talk to bats, apparently. Apparently uh, Superman is flying and he kind of gets a swarm of bats kind of surrounds him and it knocks him out of the... Out of the air and onto the ground, I'm like, you would think he'd be able to fly through a swarm of bats like they weren't there, but, oh, well, I guess not. I mean, you don't have to have him doing anything nasty to him. You just see them kind of fall out of his way as he flies by, but nope. Apparently, the bats are enough to knock Superman out of the air. So, Superman kind of falls headfirst into Morpheus' trap and into his machine, and uh, that gives Morpheus Superman's powers. So, not only is he big and ugly with bat wings, but he also has Superman's abilities. Not a good combination. So now uh, Dr. Morpheus has uh, thrown Lois into this random room so he can go and conquer Metropolis. All he wants to do is conquer Metropolis. And then what? I don't think he thought beyond that. So Superman now crawls out of the water and I wonder if he's going to get his powers back. Apparently he does not. Otherwise this episode would have ended far too quickly. So now Morpheus is kind of wrecking Metropolis and people are freaking out. And rightly so. If there was a giant uh, bat-like creature shooting webs and uh, making a mess of things, I think I'd be pretty upset too and probably be running about as well. Most of these people seem to be running in circles. I didn't at least pick the direction. So Lois is trying to uh, escape from her uh, rundown room, and uh, Superman is still nowhere to be found. 
And uh, Lois is uh, still struggling with the door when she hears someone trying to come in. And uh, she grabs a bat and is about to knock Superman's block off when he walks in. And she wouldn't have known she was going to knock Superman's block off, but she literally would have because Superman has no powers right now. And now I'm kind of wondering if he needs sun exposure or if he needs to reverse the machine. We're going to find out very shortly that it's going to have to be the machine. Because you have to, not only do you have to get Superman his powers back, because you also have to uh, depower Morpheus as well. At least put him back to the uh, animals that he originally had before he got Superman's abilities. Of course, uh, because he has Superman's powers, uh, the police's weapons are completely useless against Morpheus. And uh, Jackson here, is uh, the mayor, is calling the governor when Morpheus attacks. And... So Lois and Superman are kind of walking around out up on the street, and uh, they see these uh, two guys committing a crime, and uh, at first I thought Superman was going to intimidate these guys into surrendering. He didn't, and they didn't. So a powerless Superman is going to have to fight off these two guys with billy clubs, and he whacks them pretty good with a pair of garbage can lids, and uh, basically throws them into the trash can, which, if you're a little kid, is probably humorous. So apparently, the first place Superman goes is to the Daily Planet. He's talking to Perry White about the uh, situation. Why he would not go to the authorities in this situation is beyond me, but he goes to the newspaper instead. The planet is not where I would go. I would have gone to the mayor. But Superman didn't, so it's kind of pointless. So now Superman is going to uh, fly a helicopter, so uh, this Perry White is a much more giving of the helicopters than... Uh, the Perry White of uh, Batman v Superman Dawn of Justice. Ironically, that Perry White was played by Lawrence Fishburne, who played a character called Morpheus in the Matrix films. So like the seven, playing like the seven degrees of Morpheus right here. So now Superman is flying a helicopter, and apparently nobody questions that. And he says something that makes Lois think he sounds like Clark. Because, I don't know, maybe Clark has flown the helicopter and said something similar before, I don't know. And I love Lois's reaction to Superman having kryptonite. She calls it living dangerously. I mean, it's not dangerous if you keep it safely. So Morpheus attacks the chopper, which Superman is flying underground. He actually takes the uh, the helicopter into the hole and flies around Old Town. Not an easy task, flying a helicopter in a small uh, space like that. So Morpheus eventually causes the chopper to crash, and uh, Lois and Superman force Morpheus to chase them into the old theater. And now it's Superman's turn to lure Morpheus into a trap. And it's it's working at first, but Morpheus uses his webs to uh, swat away the kryptonite and goes after Superman. And uh, Jimmy tries to help, and he is likewise uh, swatted away because uh, he's Jimmy. And uh, Jimmy actually uses his brain in here, and uh, basically what he does is he takes a camera, takes a picture with Flash, and that distracts Morpheus enough to let Lois and Superman do what they need to do. Lois gets the kryptonite open, because she was struggling with it for most of the battle. And Superman uses Morpheus' weakness to put him in the machine and reverse the effect. So Superman has his powers again, and then he melts the machine. At least that's what it looks like. And apparently he has melted the doors shut and trapped Morpheus in the uh, machine. I'm not sure how humane that is, but this episode does not tell us what happens to Dr. Morpheus beyond this. So Superman makes a point to thank Lois for her help and uh, mention that he couldn't do it without her while putting on his husky uh, seduction voice. So that's the end of that. That was a pretty good episode. It requires you to buy the bit that the people of Metropolis, Metropolis willingly buried a piece of the city with 1880s technology. But beyond that, a fun episode. Just don't think about what it must have taken to uh, bury an entire city below the earth and then build over it. 
But I guess now with the beast dealt with, Old Town can open for business. The episode left uh, the fate of Morpheus unclear, as I'm not sure if he has been reverted to human or if he's still a creature, but, you know, oh well. Again, a decent episode. Not great, but entertaining. So, let's finish this off with the Can't Save Me album story, first date, by Shelley Wilkerson. And our supermanhomepage.com synopsis is as follows. Taking the family truck, Clark drives toward Lana's house for their first date. The truck breaks down, and Clark has to use the superpowers to fix it. Arriving at Lana's late, Clark and Lana drive off to a concert for a band called The Mix, only to have Lana's car door get stuck. Again, Clark uses his superpowers to remove the door. When the band's own van breaks down, making them late for their own concert, Clark flies off, fixing their van, and flies back to enjoy the concert with Lana. Alright, so now we're going to get the trials and tribulations of Clark dating. We've gotten all the other trials and tribulations, why not this as well? So Clark is going on his first date with Lana, and uh, the truck backfires as he's leaving. I don't know if Lana would want to go anywhere with Clark in this, in this heap. But Ma can't make a statement about Clark having trouble with the old jalopy, and sure enough, Clark is having trouble with the old jalopy. And uh, Lana, as all women do in this situation, remind Clark that he's late. So now they're eating, and uh, Clark and Nervous squirted ketchup literally across the room, and probably uh, onto somebody's lap or something. Maybe he got lucky and landed on someone's hot dog, but I don't recall. So now they go to a concert, and the band is called The Mix. What a shitty name for a band. And now, Clark almost forgot the tickets. Which, I almost did once. In college, uh, a bunch of us were going to see a taping of Monday Night Raw. This was probably late 1999, I think? Which would have made it my sophomore year of college. We were about to leave uh, the school and uh, leave in the parking lot right in front of my dorm. And all of a sudden, I yell, stop! (laughs) I had forgotten the tickets and had to run upstairs and get them. At least... uh, I had forgotten them. Remembered there that I forgot them and not like in the Lincoln Tunnel or something. So, anyway, he found the tickets in the back seat. I don't know why he put them there, but that's where they were. You know, the little uh, pouch thing in the back of uh, the, the seat. So, now the band doesn't show up. After two hours uh, of waiting, uh, by now people would have rioted if there was nobody there for two hours. Not even the opening act, I guess. But Clark finds with his supervision that they broke down. He gets into the show, and Clark's dating life is saved for, at least for now. Eh, I really don't have much to say about that. It, outside of those early uh, Super Baby-ish Ken Family album stories, I can either take these or leave these, to be totally honest. Well, either way, next time, going back to Superboy with The Beast and Beauty and The Fixer. In the meantime, if you want to leave feedback, it's always welcome. Manascreen at gmail.com. If you want to join the conversation over the Facebook group, just put Man of Screen Podcast in your search feed and the show should come up. You can also find the show on Twitter at Man of Screencast. And if you get a minute, why don't you leave me a review on Apple Podcasts? That'll help other people find the show. So, until next time, folks, we're all on the same team. Good night. The Man of Screen Podcast is produced by Mike Dumo. And all opinions expressed on the show are those of Mike Zemo and his guests and no one else. All music and sound clips used on the show are for review purposes only and no copyright infringement is intended. All music and sound clips are copyrighted by original copyright owners. The Man of Screen is a member of the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network and can be found at www.twotruefreaks.com. Emails of this show can be sent to manofscreen at gmail.com. And you can also leave the show review on iTunes. That will help others find the show. 
Thank you for listening to the Man Screen Podcast.